So I kind of just met people and then I would, would date a few who seemed like they had promised and I had was a very poor judge of character. So I just kind of bumbled along. I met a lot of guys for coffee to see kind of what they were like. And now. Hey, <laughs> hey, I'm the captain now. <laughs> Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sit off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening? How are you doing today? Thank you so much for being here. And I am Chris. And I'm Christine. And welcome to episode 175 of the Chris and Christine Show. Do, 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 do. Ooh-wee, it's so glad and grad and awesome to be back here in the podcasting studio, babe. It absolutely is. And I know in our last episode, I said we'd see you back here next week, but dun, 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 it's been like three weeks off because I got incredibly sick over the last few weeks. No, you okay? What happened? Well, I am better now. I mean, I had a little, I would call it a, like a relapse, almost like last night where I thought I was getting the stomach flu, but I had a horrible, horrible respiratory virus and couldn't get rid of it. I was so sick. The doctor literally put me on bed rest. I've never had that happen before other than when I had COVID back in 2020. But after battling it without medicine, other than like DayQuil and NyQuil for four days, I uh, finally saw the doctor and she looked at me and she's like, "This, you're, you are not in good shape. And immediately took me off of work, told me I was to stay in bed, sleeping as much as possible, put me on high dose antibiotics. And then I slept for another five days, almost solid. I counted it up, Chris, how many days, how many hours a day I was sleeping when I was at my sickest. I was sleeping 19 out of 24 hours of a day. Wow. And, and then I felt like it still wasn't enough. I was so lethargic. Really? Well, you were not feeling well. You did not look very well. And I felt bad having to leave you and go to work. And I want to be by your side helping you out. And, and um, I know when you are sick, when I'm sick, I will just... NyQuil, DayQuil it up. Yeah. Were you using any of those kind of medicines? Oh, yeah. I was living off of Mucinex, DayQuil, NyQuil. I had prescription cough medicine and an antibiotic. And, you know, it's just, it's that time of year. So here's the thing to know about me. Ever since I was born, like literally that far back, my mom told me, all the way back since infancy, I have had really bad respiratory problems. Like, to the point of where I was hospitalized very frequently as a baby and I've always had asthma and getting a respiratory virus for me is very dangerous. We Nobody can figure out why, like why my respiratory system is just not as strong as other people's, but it's literally been since birth. A little side note with that, uh, being that you do not have the strongest lungs in the respiratory system, have you ever smoked at all ever in your life? Never. Okay. If I was to even, like, if I go into a casino where they're smoking, it triggers my asthma so bad that I, it's like, it's bad. Like, coughing spell to the point of almost being sick. Uh, so, like, we went to the casino for our anniversary and it was at the tail end of me being sick. And I had to really avoid everybody smoking. Yeah, there was a guy playing uh, this machine 
that I wanted to play right next to him. And he literally was a chimney. Just smoking, blowing smoke, ashing, like almost like he was ashing, like flicking his ashes off a cigarette off into my machine. Like, yeah, like he was the, right there. And, and I had to walk away. Yeah, you didn't want to play next to me. So I was playing. That's the machine actually probably won the most money I ever won on. Hey, yeah. spoiler alert, I did not bring home any extra cash that trip, but uh, it was still a very funny Yeah, thing. you didn't even quite break even, but we didn't lose a lot. So that's good. But, you know, we're, we apologize that, you know, we always promise we'll be back with you next week and life happens. And so I had, I actually had no voice or very little voice for that first week where I sounded like worse than a frog. Yeah. You know, when it comes to doing podcasts or any kind of video stuff, anything really is that you have to be, your voice has got to be there. You got to look presentable. You got to feel like you want to do it. If you don't, I feel don't like, have to look presentable because well, we're audio only. Yeah. When you're audio only, but at least you still have to have your voice though. Right. And there's techniques and tricks I've heard about that preserve your voice with like uh, tea and honey and all the stuff you got to do. You know, if you want to keep your voice good and, and little vocal training you got to do, but uh, nobody guess. really nobody really does that stuff. At least you don't. I mean, unless you're like a singer, like um, well, yeah, unless you're Swifty yeah. or something like that. But we are glad to be back and I'm glad to be almost completely better. I did go back to work last week for one day in the office um, before the holiday break. But um, yeah, definitely was out. I was out of work for five full days, which never, I never do that. I almost always um, work through it or I'll take like a sick day, but there was no messing around with that. But I'm back this week and we're back at it Yeah, fantastic. Back to podcasting. It's like, what do we do here? It's been so long since the last time we actually recorded something. So here we are. Okay. I have to ask you a very honest question because I still haven't been able to figure this out. Why is it that you love podcasting so much? I love content creation. I've always wanted no, to be on the No, why radio. is it that you love podcasting? Okay, I'll tell you why. I thought of this the other day. I was like, I think the reason why I like podcasting so much is because it's the one form of media that I can consume while I'm physically working my job. Okay, but that's why you like to listen to podcasts, not why you like podcasting. And because I like it so much, it's like, it's the same thing as the kids that want to throw footballs in the backyard. You know, they're not playing for the NFL, but they're like, they're like playing, like, I was like, maybe I'm just playing podcasting the entire time. That's what it is. I like to play with this stuff. I think that's what it is, is it's like your playtime. It's like recess. And so for you, you're always like, are we going to podcast? Are we going to podcast? Are we going to podcast? And well, like, I don't say quite like that. Um, Basically you do. No, I, I'm very cool about it. I now say, you are. If, if you're not, if you don't feel like no, doing no. it. If you don't feel like it, don't no, worry. No, you do passive aggressive. This is today. I don't even know what that even means. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Today it was, uh, hey, honey, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, can I ask you a very serious question? It's always very serious. And it's like, what is it, Chris? <laughs> Are we ever going to podcast ever again? Because if not, I have a plan. And I'm like, dude, I literally just got off of being sick and I just posted Thanksgiving for your entire family yesterday. Like, give me a break. I've given you months of breaks. No, it wasn't a break. I was sick. It's very different. Very different. So for you, it's playing. For me, it's work. Uh, You know what? I enjoy this so much. And I enjoy you listening back at home. We both appreciate, Christine appreciates you too. Um, (laughs) 
What do you give me that look I'm for? I'm just looking at you. Keep going. <laughs> well, we both appreciate you listening. We're back at it, back in the podcasting spirit. Tis the season, baby. Tis the season for what? For podcasting, you know? I guess so. I mean, you're all gung-ho and excited about it. So what is it that you wanted to share? What's been happening in your life since, uh, you know, 700 years ago when we made our last episode. Well, we see the wheel was invented. We actually, uh, we landed on the moon. Um, (laughs) We discovered water was wet. What else did we discover (laughs) in the time we've we've been away from the podcasting stuff? And everybody out there can't stop laughing at your hilarious jokes right now. Hey, speaking of jokes, I heard that we have a a comedian in the family. Uh, Yeah. Oh, you know what? We act. Actually, we have, a, he is a budding and very successful uh, up and coming comedian. Ezekiel Belcher has not just made his debut. He's now had, I think, four appearances on the small stage where he has been uh, com- not competing, but he's been participating in an open mic in his hometown of Clovis, California. And you can shout out to Ezekiel on Instagram if you want to find out details. If you live in Central California and want to go and support him. Uh, But he has, um, he's been building up his repertoire and building out, writing out some of his own bits, testing out some new material. And the open mic is like three minutes that he gets to do. That's four minutes. but, But this last week, the promoters there have been impressed with his initiative and how he's coming back with new material and they upgraded him now to the four minute slot. Wow. How many different versions do they have? Is it four, th- uh, three, four, ten? I mean, if you get like- I think bigger- it's three, four, five. And then I don't know what's beyond that because they have actual comedians that come in for shows, like bigger shows. When you went to see Steve Burns at one time, how long was his set? Do you remember? Um, well, his set, because he's the, the headliner, is longer. But speaking of Steve Byrne, he, we sent him a video of Ezekiel's second time appearing. He was so proud of him. And he said, have him keep practicing. And when he's ready, open invitation to be my opener for five minutes in Vegas. No. What? Yeah. <laughs> No way. Yeah. Can you imagine Ezekiel performing in Vegas? Oh my gosh. He would, I would die. We would, you and I would have to go. We would absolutely oh, have to go. Of course I would go. And Are you kidding to, me? Like front seat it. But I would have to work with him on, on a set though. I'd have to get some, we have to fine tune his set. So it's like perfect. Well, of course, but he would practice with us, but you don't need to work on it. He can work on it and we can be his audience, but he is very self-aware. He has, he has friends that are attending each of his sets and they video it for him and he watches it back and he's starting to like write out some of his own, um, like we don't call them jokes because like, I remember we were interviewing a comedian, Carrie Pomerale one time and we were like, Oh, tell us a joke. And she's like, I don't do jokes. I do bits. Okay. Okay. So what's the difference? Because a joke is like, knock, knock. Who's there? A bit is like, you know, so my mom is, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you go down like, a little bit for a minute or two right? versus right. There's, like there's, transaction. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think if you have to go on stage and say, my next joke is, you shouldn't do that. Right. You know, but but he has done that. I remember on some of the videos I was watching of him, he was saying, my next joke is going to be about something. He, that he, was his first two. Okay. Okay. That he did. But um, <laughs> what was so funny, 
I was cracking up this past week because he videoed it and he was like uh, talking about me and then he was talking about Hallmark Channel and then he goes, all right, get ready for a rough transition here. <laughs> and he switched gears and I was like, that was funny. Like that right there. He's like, rough transition coming up. And I'm like, okay, he knows he didn't have a segue into something, but he said that and I was like, okay, He's becoming very aware of it. Super proud of him. That's amazing. I'm I'm really proud of him too. Like when he first told me about it and he first showed me his first little video he sent me, uh, him doing stand up. I was very very proud of him. And I'm like, I want to do that. I, I want I want I want to participate. Can I like is it bring a friend day or something? Can I, <laughs> can I do it too? That looks like look so much fun. It looks so fun to just just be up there and. Uh, I mean, although it was not a big crowd of people, but still, it's anybody. It's before. a crowd, though. It is a crowd, for and sure. And it's getting you know? up there, and it's put, making yourself vulnerable. And the thing that I love about our boys at this stage is every one of them is taking a risk in some area of their life to pursue something that they are passionate about. Ezekiel with his stand-up comedy. Jacob has started uh, training with a private trainer and going to the gym for football to prepare for high school. Mason has been doing baseball and also Mason has his, um, what is it called on YouTube? His YouTube shorts? Yeah, he has a YouTube channel. I can't believe little Mason Jar, who's only 11 years old, has got like, I think he's at like 500 or some 400 subscribers, some massive number. And one of his videos, I think, has somewhere in the ballpark of like 25,000 views. And I don't know. I don't understand his videos. They're just like video game videos with like music in the background or something, Minecraft or Roblox or something. I don't know. I don't, I don't get that stuff. It's old funny daddy here, you know? Right. But I, I think the important thing is that all three of our boys are finding things that they are passionate about and taking an interest in it in addition to their studies. And I think that's really important because what you and I are trying to model for them through like mine, through my business, you through your podcasting and podcasting business is you can hold down a job and be successful and provide for your family. And you can also pursue your passion. So like both for Jacob and Ezekiel, they've been really focused on their studies this year. And now they're cultivating these passions outside of the classroom and Mason is working on figuring out that balance because it's his first year in middle school, like grades and navigating multiple classrooms and baseball. But I'm just really proud of our kids. And you know what? I think that we should celebrate ourselves as parents for a minute here that that is something that not every family has done where they're really embracing their kids, pursuing their passions, right? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. That's, you know, I, I do appreciate having the uh, the kids being excited to be able to do the things that they're passionate about and be excited about the things they're passionate about. It makes me very proud as a parent that these kids aren't just want to be bumps in a log. They actually physically want to go out there and do something outside of the bedroom because they know a lot of kids. They went through a that phase. That sounds weird, outside of the bedroom, but well, outside I mean, of gaming, right? Well, yeah, because yeah, they're, when they're, for many years, they just want to be in their room and just playing their video games. They still do, but still. Jacob asked me, hey, you want to play catch with me, dad, in the backyard? Yep. And I'm like, yeah, I'll throw a pass, I'll throw the ball to you because he's learning these, these pass techniques and these routes because he wants to be a wide receiver. And so I have him run across the grass. We don't have a big backyard, but I have him run across the grass and he cuts in front and I throw the ball to him. He catches it in motion. 
and catch it pretty well. There's a couple of passes that weren't that's great that I threw to him that he he still caught and kind of missed. But they're, like I said, the backyard isn't so big. So right. when he does run the route, he has to stop before he hits the fence. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things where you turn around real quick, catches it. And then Mason worked with Mason playing catch in the backyard when he was doing baseball. He was doing baseball for the last month or two. And he had games every Sunday. And they were, um, he was in the fall ball little league. And uh, he loved being there with his friends. It was he, actually four months, Chris. Was it four months? Four months. Wow. So uh, he had his last game last weekend or two weeks, whatever it was. It was recently his last game. And he had so much fun doing it. He um, takes it very seriously and he gets very upset when he doesn't do as well as he, he likes right. to be out there. But he just still loves going out there and meeting his friends. And I think he does it for all the community building he likes to do. Having, um, you know, his friends there. Friends, yeah. Hanging out and all of that. I love that. But I wanted to highlight one big change that's come up in your work life that's going to actually come into effect in the new year. Something that's really kind of changed the way that our family is going to function a little bit. Well, now you got me curious. I wonder what that is. Oh, uh-huh. What is it with your schedule at work that's changed? Well, um, in the time that Christine has ever known me, I've had the exact same schedule, which is, I think, funny because I think when I first met Christine, we actually, I had just landed this schedule I'm on today, which I've had since the entire time I've known her. And for the first time in our history, it's actually changing. And I think it's changing for the better. It's going to be changing. Instead, I have right now, I have Friday, I have Saturday, Sunday, Mondays off currently. Right. But going to next year, I'm going to have Friday, Saturday, Sundays off. And my Monday is going to be actually a Monday. So it's kind but of But you exciting. don't go to work until like 2.30 on Monday. Correct. So I work afternoons, evenings. So which means I'm going to have all Friday, all Friday night off, all Saturday, all Saturday night off, all Sunday and Sunday night off. I don't have to think about work until Monday afternoon, which means I'm going to have the closest thing to a normal, like regular schedule that you can have at my company. I think it's probably the best schedule in the entire fleet. You know what? It's funny because at first I was like completely against it, thinking it was going to be such a dramatic change. And then my parents came to visit and my dad was talking with you about it. And then I started to think, oh, wait, if you're off on Friday, that means so you work Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, you get home, but like Friday morning around like 3 a.m. ish, give or take. So you sleep, wake up around 10, 15 on a Friday. You could get up, shower, we could pack a bag and we could decide to like, hey, I'm going to take a half day at work. Um, Let's pick up the kids early from school and drive up to spend the weekend with my family in Central California and we can actually do that versus waiting until you wake up on a, a Saturday morning after working Friday night and then trying to get out of town. It never would work for us. And then, cause I would have to be back in time for work on Monday, but now actually our schedules are lined up. It's really going to be amazing. Hallelujah. I know. You know, when we were first dating and before COVID happened, you were locked down in the house most of the time. Uh, we only saw each other on the weekends or Sundays, Saturdays, right, Saturdays maybe. Or sun- we didn't live together until we were engaged for several months. I didn't move in until we were engaged and had a wedding date. Like that was my thing. I would not live with you unless you had a ring on it and we were fully committed to a wedding. Oh, well, bada bing, bada boom. There we go. Right. <laughs> That's how you but do it. When we were dating, because I lived like 30 minutes away, 
you're right. We would see each other very occasionally during the week. It was really hard. It was when you came over for dinner, when I would cook you dinner. I remember that. On Monday nights, I could come over for that. And then I would hang out. Like once you woke up on Saturday, I'd come over, um, you'd make the coffee and I'd show up right around coffee time or right before lunchtime. And then we'd hang out and, you know, do whatever on Saturday and then, you know, get back together on Sunday. But, you know, this is going to be, I think this is going to be great for all of our kids. I think it's going to be great for us as a couple. And I'm really hopeful that, you know, maybe we'll be able to get some, the kids are getting older. Maybe we'll get some weekend getaways, just the two of us. Um, I think that'll be really good for our marriage as well, because, you know, their kids are going to be 14 and 12. And I think that they're, you know, a little bit more well-behaved and on track so that we yeah, really- Yeah, most, can... most days, most days. Right. Not, not always, but you know, the kids are kids, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I think that that would be really great for us. And so, you know, it's really important when we're in a relationship together to make sure to slow down and take time because, you know, time is so precious that we have in our relationship together. It is because before you know it, you know, you blink and you're 50, like I'm almost there, you know, and uh, right. or 60 or even beyond. And then you realize that, you know, the time you've had together, it, you try to, I try to maximize as much time as you can with the other person, if mm-hmm. if possible. It's not always possible because it work schedules and mm-hmm. and think you know. Thankfully, we have been able to get our schedules to align and be yeah. able to be together, even do this, you know, the yeah. podcast. And it's not always like that. Absolutely. And so, speaking of that, coming up this week, we have a great guest who's going to be talking with us about navigating a life of grief after losing a partner and what that's like. And we're going to be back with her right after this. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing podcasting made easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. And welcome back everybody. Today we have another fantastic VIP guest. She is an author and is going to be talking with us about her fabulous book. Welcome to the show, Debbie Weiss. Hi, Chris and Christine. Thank you for having me on your show. Hey, Debbie. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Where in the world are you joining us from? I'm joining you from beautiful Benicia, California. Benicia, California. That sounds exotic. It sounds like something that should be in Italy. Is it like Italy? No. Um, <laughs> but it is quite lovely. It is on the water. So, oh. I mean, I guess I could say it's like the Italian Riviera. Um, but <laughs> it's, um, it is the first state capital of California. Oh, that's very interesting. I don't know if I realized that it was the first state capital. Is that because it was so close to the water? I, I'm guessing so. Um, we have legislature buildings and just a lot of historic stuff here. Well, you're, are you going to tell me that Sacramento was not their first choice? 
<laughs> that's su- surprisingly not. <laughs> what? You're blowing my mind right now. Uh, but honestly, though, if you live outside of California, first off, a couple things. Uh, everybody outside of California refers to everybody here as from Cali, which nobody here says that. And the second thing is that uh, everybody thinks, I guess, L.A. is the capital of California, really, if you think about it. So is Benicia, um, you know, I am familiar with California geography. Is it in close proximity to San Francisco area? It's pretty close to Napa. People know Napa. Oh. We're, we're about 30 minutes away from there. Awesome. That's wine country, right? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. And have you lived in Northern California your entire life? Just about, yeah. I've lived in Northern California since I was six. Oh, wow. Yeah, that I would say that's pretty much your entire life. Now, what are the, your favorite things about living up in Benicia? Let's see. It's on the water. So it's really pretty. It's on the Cartina Straits. So it, there's a beautiful rolling hills and lovely calm waters. Um, I also love that it feels like a small town. It's a quote-unquote main street town. And it's pretty small. It's about 28,000 people, but it feels much smaller. We have a small downtown with stop with, um, stop signs, not stop lights and no parking meters. And I've lived here two years and already I feel like I just know a lot of people and have a lot of connections. So it's really lovely and friendly here. It sounds like one of those cute towns that you would see on a Hallmark Channel movie. Oh, Christine's favorite. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I love those Hallmark movies, actually, and it does have that vibe. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, I grew up in Central California in a little town like that, not near the water, um, but definitely a cutesy little town. And so I can totally relate with that small town vibe. Now, Chris and I, we live down in the San Diego area, which is a hustling and bustling metropolis, so a little bit of a different feel. Uh, But we're excited to have you here with us today and to learn a little bit about you and your journey. So um, we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about about yourself and some of your interests. We've heard something about yoga in your background. Well, my interests, I'm I'm a former attorney. I'm probably here on your show. Thank you. Because I wrote a book. So writing is a huge interest of mine. Basically, I got into writing uh, after 2023 when I lost my husband of 32 years. So I kind of had to reformulate my life. Oh, wow. Uh, we're so sorry for your loss. But going back to the, the writing and being an attorney. So I know a lot of attorneys and they are very technical and very analytical. So would you say that you were journey into writing is like a technical and analytical? Do you write manuals when you say that you do writing? No, nothing like that. Um, No. Um, My work as an attorney was I was an insurance coverage lawyer, which is about as exciting as it sounds. Um, I interpreted insurance contracts. It was pretty dry. But um, (laughs) I retired uh, many years ago when I was 40. And I wrote for a hobby that was like creative writing. And I, I took a class at a retirement center. This is amazing writers and a wonderful teacher. But I didn't take it very seriously. And then when my husband passed in 2013, I started to write about what it was like to be widowed. And from there, I started to get some stuff published and I blogged for a while. Okay. And 
wrote my book and got all into that. So that that wasn't technical. At first, it was kind of more emotional. And then I got more into kind of the craft of it. Do you think that your first steps into writing was more for yourself than for other people? Originally, yes. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Sometimes when I sit down and I want to like process my feelings, I'll just sit down and try and and write or type something out. And it feels like at least you're being able to get it out there. And one of the things that I've struggled with, and I don't know if if you were the same way, is when you're going through hard stuff, not wanting to feel like you're burdening other people with your emotions, but you still need to be able to get them out somewhere. Well, I guess um, for what a guy does is he'll go to the garage and tinker around and or work on mm. some project or do something like that. So you, Debbie, you decided to write. Were you doing a lot of journaling before um, before your husband passed away? Like kind of get, get you started? Not so much, but I was going to a writing class and um, I was you know submitting things to class once a week and I was writing, I don't know, like kind of short, short essays. So Debbie, you were saying that um, you did get started with writing a little bit before uh, your husband had passed because you said you were writing about being raised by a single father? Yeah. That's awesome. And so when you say that he was into science, what what was that life like growing up with a single dad as a science person, a scientist? Well, he's actually a nuclear physicist. Um, he worked at Lawrence Livermore Lab, and I grew up in Danville, which is a suburb um, about an hour, well, back then about a half hour southeast of San Francisco. And it was interesting because the suburb that I lived in was really quiet and empty. It's called Danville. Now it's bustling and overcrowded. <laughs> and uh, it was it was really an, an interesting way to grow up. I'm an only child. Only so child, I'm, huh? That's very fascinating. I always find people who are only child, children, I should say. Very, uh, very curious what it's like growing up, not having siblings that you fight over, or fight for clothes, or fight for toys, and are always kind of get mad at, but yet you always got to hang out in each other's rooms. <laughs> I always kind of wonder what it's like being an only child. Well, you know, it's funny because when you're a kid, you don't really know anything different. And my my dad was also an only child, so we had a pretty small family. Um, it was nice. I read a lot. It was just very, very quiet. Yeah, I I can definitely relate to that. So before Chris and I got together, my son was an only child. And so seeing the transition for him of being an only child to now being one of three, it's definitely a change. And for me as the parent, getting used to a lot of noise and chaos around the house versus being very used to a single child who could entertain himself and was totally fine with reading books or playing games on his own to having, you know, such intensity, it definitely makes a a big difference in the household. But in moving forward, so you ended up getting married and um, having a partner for a number of years. About how old were you when you met your, uh, your husband, your late husband? I was, I was seven. You were seven? Wait, that's kind of young to get married. I don't know. I mean, what, <laughs> well, yeah, what country we, we, was this? We, we, you know, we dated first. Now, he was 11 and I was seven. Our parents worked together. They were actually both scientists. Wow. That's amazing. So you guys met, but I mean, I, okay, when you're that young, 
you're not really thinking like, oh, I'm going to bury this guy. Or, or did you? No, I thought he was cute. But, you know, I was seven. So I thought I, I didn't think of boys that very seriously. But um, since our parents worked together and his uh, parents were real social, you know, they had a big house and they had work people over a lot. We kind of kept getting thrown together over the years. Thrown um, together, huh? A different family event, you know. Oh. They'd be at something and I'd meet him. And so we kind of kept meeting up at different things. And then we finally kind of started dating when I was 17 and I was a senior in high school and he was 21 and a senior majoring in engineering at UC Berkeley. Look at that. Was it, was it the uh, engineering that drew you to him at that point? Or was he, yes, was, I thought engineers were, were very exciting. Really? No, um, <laughs> <laughs> You're the first, but I think. He was really cute and really charming. And um, I'd known him forever. And we just really hit it off. That's great. That's amazing. So you go out on this date. And how soon was it before you knew, like, you were, you'd fallen for this man? Well, you know, I wasn't sure. But... He was four years older, and this was, oh, 1981. So he was uh, training for um, a 200-mile bike race called the Davis Double Century. And he'd come by my dad's house, and he was training with tapes. We had tapes back then of the bands he liked, uh, the Ramones, Blondie, you know, the mm-hmm. class that was that time. And um, finally, we hung out enough, and I invited him to my senior prom. And I think he knew. I wasn't so sure. I was going to college the next year. But I think he knew. That's amazing. And so did you end up going to the same college as him or did you move away? Well, he was four years older. So he was at UC Berkeley. He was a senior. And I went to Mills College in Oakland, which is a, a women's college, which it doesn't exist anymore, sadly. But uh, he was just starting at Hewlett Packard, I think, uh, when I was starting college. So he was in San Jose and I was in Oakland. And we, we met up a lot. I'd come home weekends. You know, our parents only lived about 10 minutes apart, maybe 15. So you were able to make it work. I love that. Yeah, it's great. You guys live fairly close, too, in the, in the, you know, in the area. It's not like you guys are long distance or anything like that. So that's great. You know, helps helps out with that. And so yeah, it, it worked out great. And then I went to um, UC Davis Law School uh, in 1985. And he was in the South Bay. But again, we made it work. We'd meet up weekends. And then once a week, he'd come visit me at school. And so then at what point did the two of you decide to take this thing to the next level and uh, make it official, make it legal? Well, that's kind of funny. Um, we actually didn't get married till I retired from work. I put practicing law when I was 40. Um, that's a whole other story. Law was not that pleasant. And we got married then. Until then, we lived together because he was, um, he was actually the tech lead on a program called uh, Quicken which is a financial software program for Intuit. So we didn't get married until um, we wouldn't, until taxes worked out in our favor. Yeah, you know, I've heard of a lot of couples doing that. And, you know, the whether you put something on a piece of paper to say you're legally married or not, you're still together, you're still committed, you're still a couple. I know that Chris and I had to have some really deep conversations before we decided to get engaged really looking at the tax advantages because both of us in a different journey in life, but we were both single parents filing head of household and trying to figure out like, 
is this going to harm us? Is this going to help us? Could we just live together and not have the legal document to say we were married? And, you know, at some point we finally just decide like, well, let's just throw caution to the wind and do this thing. We'll figure it out. But um, yeah, so I could definitely see how that was a conversation point. So you get married after you retired from law. And then uh, what was that? Did your life change very much after you were legally married versus living together? Or was it just a continuation of the life that you'd built together? Oh, it was just a continuation. I mean, by then we lived together for 15, around 15 years. So and we bought a home together. That's that's great. It's like you're starting your whole lives together at kind of the same point in in time Mm -hmm. versus where if you you know, get married or date later in life, it's different journeys mm-hmm. coming together. But that's what I was here. It was when you when you meet somebody so young in your, I guess, dating journey, it's kind of nice because you're both kind of on the same level, so to speak. Did you feel like that when you were with uh, your husband? Very much so. Because you, you, know, you discover everything together and you're really, I don't know, flexible, but you grow together, right? So like the things you go through, you go through together. And the disagreements you have, you work out then. Because, I mean, I, you know, I, I lost him and, and dated later in life. So it was very hard to start seeing people where you're just, your lives are so disparate. There, there are so few connection points. Right. So the two of you were legally married when, after you'd retired from law. And um, over the next 10 years, it sounds like you had some probably really great ups, but some also really low lows. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was like from 40 until 50? It was fine. I mean, I was pretty lazy because, you know, I'd I'd cranked. I mean, I'd I'd gone through law school and graduated at 25 and passed the bar and cranked until I was 40. And um, at that point, we decided that we weren't going to have kids. And he's very kindly because I was, I was stressed to the gills with being a lawyer. I had this job where you build in six-minute increments on these timesheet grids. So I was starting to dream in this graph paper thing. And he said, retire. And I did. And um, we just spent all our time together. That is living the dream right there. And yeah. you see, retire, age 40 retired? Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. I mean, yeah. So for perspective, I'm 42. And Chris hey, and I, hey, I look like a 25. Oh, babe. well, thank you. But Aww. Chris and I were just having this conversation this morning about you know what do we envision our life will be like for the next, you know, however many years and at what point can I retire? And uh, we got married right around the time when I think it was just after my or just before my 40th birthday. So so I can get with that timeline. I understand like where you're at in your life. And it's like, you're tired of grinding. You're ready to be in a different phase of life. Um, but then it sounds like life hit you with a ton of bricks after a couple of years. Actually, it hit me for the, like a ton of bricks after about seven years. You know, we had seven years that were pretty chill. And then in uh, 2009, he, he got diagnosed with, uh, with cancer. That's tragic. What, what, what uh, type of cancer do you mind sharing? It's very rare for men. Metastatic uh, male breast cancer. Oh, my word. Wow. How, how would one go about finding that? Like, here, I'm checking myself right now. But how, how, what, what, what the, signs to look for? 
You, it, it's a really good question because most men don't check themselves. Um, you know, generally I say, you know, it's a lump in the breast. It's, it's an abnormality. It's a sore that doesn't heal. In George's case, he, he was a do-it-yourselfer at home. Mm-hmm. And he'd hit himself in the chest with a hammer or something and it wounded himself, but it never healed. And he was working like crazy. So he ignored this this wound on his chest and I never got a good look at it because he, he was a workaholic. That was the one downside to George. But he was up early and working and um, this thing on his chest never really healed and it sort of calcified. And he went to the doctor right after his product, right after Quicken shipped one morning. He said, I'm going, I'm going to the hospitals. You don't usually do that in the morning. And uh, from there he was diagnosed. Oh, wow. That is tragic. That, I mean, here, here, what was it like when he first told you the devastating news? Like, where were you and how'd you take that? Well, I was sitting in our living room on the couch. I remember that. He'd gone in for tests the week before, and he'd been pretty mysterious. He'd said, I'm going in for tests. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be super difficult. Um, And especially when you're going along in your regular day-to-day life and and things have been so chill and like being sidelined by this, I can imagine it just literally hitting you like a ton of bricks and out of nowhere. And so what was your first response in that situation? Was it fix it mode or was it, let's see what the doctors say? Because I know everybody has different responses to things like that. Well, you know, one thing about my husband, again, he was, he was a wonderful man. He was amazing, mentored us so many engineers, but he was a workaholic and he was a control freak. And he said he would deal with the doctors and he would communicate to me what was going on, and he didn't really want me involved. Um, I think he was really very protective. Also, my mom had died at the same hospital where he was getting treated. My mom died when I was 10. And now I was, um, I guess, late 40s at this point. I was a grown-up. I mean, I could handle it, but he decided to really take it on himself. And I was, I think I was just really numb. I was just sort of shocked, and I was sort of ready to go into, well, what do you want me to do? And the answer was nothing. Debbie, what did your mom uh, die of sharing? I'm not sure. It was a it was a brief kind of kind of an illness. She had a, a blood disorder and then it resulted in a heart attack when she got to the hospital. Uh, oh. that that is tragic, but but it wasn't cancer related. I'm saying so. No. It was like the same thing. I mean, how ironic! Same thing, same hospital. You know that it was, was really weird. Um, I go into it in my book. It was it was very weird because she she lingered for a few months in the hospital, and my dad didn't let me see her because, you know, a 10-year-old shouldn't see that. And so it was very strange to be so feeling very shut out again. Oh. Even though, you know, now I was an adult and I was, I like to think competent. Yeah, I could see how that could feel very isolating and also trigger some, some trauma. How did you manage that as you were navigating through this and... Uh, George wasn't getting better. Well, you know, what was interesting is he was diagnosed in 2009 and he has, he had the strongest will of anybody I've ever known. So he drove himself to chemo. He drove himself to radiation. He continued to work full time. He lost his hair, but he didn't lose his appetite. So he really took over everything. He acted like everything was fine. 
kept giving me results, you know, reports that he was doing well. The doctors were astonished he was doing so very well. So, you know, for about uh, two and a half years or so, it really didn't impact us very much. I was always worried. I was kind of looking. I'd look at his medical records, couldn't really decipher them. But oddly enough, it didn't really impact our lives. And so what, at what point did it become unavoidable where this was not going to go well and you knew that you needed to help him plan for, for hospice care and prepare yourself to potentially be a widow? Well, sadly enough, what happened was um, about nine months before he passed, uh, he died in April of 2013. So about mid-2012, he just started to really decline. I mean, the cancer was always going to win, and it started to win. But unfortunately, George was a genius. You know, he was an 800 SAT National Merit Scholar, recruited by everybody kind of guy. But his mind uh, went into denial. So unfortunately, he thought he was getting better even as he was getting worse. Uh, So he turned down hospice care, palliative care, didn't let his doctors talk to me, kept his parents out of it, which was terribly sad, and just kind of acted like he was getting better. And that's when things went kind of crazy. That's that's tragic for so many different reasons because that... At point in the game where you know this is coming to an end and you feel it coming, and I'm sure he he probably feels it coming too, it, you kind of want all the support you possibly can get at that point, I would think. But, he, but it sounds like he did not. He didn't want support. He didn't think he was dying. He thought he was going to get better. Well, we all hope he, that, yeah. Yeah, I think he thought if he hoped hard enough, you know, I looked at his medical records and cancer had spread to his brain. And he functioned quite well, but somehow he managed to trick himself that he was recovering and he genuinely believed it. So he turned down all the outside care and uh, finally he was having respiratory problems enough that he was um, admitted to the hospital a few times and and then it was quite clear that he wasn't wasn't going to recover. That is horrible. That is awful. That is we're so I, I, sorry that you had to go through that. And, and navigating through that with a partner who is in denial, it poses its own set of, of challenges. I mean, when somebody's in denial that they're going to be passing away, I'm sure that they wouldn't even be accepting of people trying to help them prepare for end of life. And so now you're just facing this new chapter and you're a widow and what was your your first step in trying to figure out how to live life now alone? It was kind of unreal. Um, during the day, I was very organized. I, you know, kind of went through all the things I had to do with the estate and paperwork and such. I was kind of numb. Um, you know, he'd paid all the bills. He'd been responsible for everything. So I kind of had to organize all that from scratch. And again, the house was falling apart in a few ways that needed attention. So I I did that. And then in the evening, it was just surreal. I would just kind of zone out. And some nights I could eat a ton, some nights hardly anything. um, And just watch TV or listen to George's favorite albums. I was just very alone. 
I could imagine how the silence could just be really deafening for you. How did you, well, I was, I was going to say, how did you avoid getting depressed? I'm making an assumption you didn't get depressed. So let me rephrase that. Did you battle okay. any type of depression um, in the midst of your grief or did you find that you were able to maintain your, your mental well-being? I would say it wasn't depression so much as anxiety. Mm. I, I was very amped up. I mean, I felt so terrible about his death and I felt guilty. I'd been his caregiver and I'd not been a very good one. I'd had anger and frustration since he couldn't recognize the state he was in. So when he died, I had a lot of guilt and um, I had to start to work with that. So you felt guilty, huh? I guess that's kind of something that everybody who goes through the loss of a spouse, probably, I would think everybody kind of feels that, right? Well, I mean, as a caregiver, I think people feel a lot of guilt when you're a caregiver because you're responsible for this person. And most of us, that isn't a role that we're familiar with. Um, In my case, it was very hard because George was in such poor shape, but wouldn't acknowledge it. So he wouldn't let us get the kind of care we needed, like palliative care or hospice care or that type of thing. And so as you navigated through that anger, I know there's all of these different stages of grief, um, you know, going through the anger, the guilt, the uh, the bargaining. We've been, so for context purposes, uh, over the last couple of months, we've had several losses in our family. And Chris was talking with me about the stages of grief because I was like, I'm not myself right now and I don't know why. And so he's like, okay, well, let's like look at the different stages and what are you feeling right now? And, you know, vacillating between like anger and bargaining and guilt. It's, it's like this really awkward tug of war that's just mentally exhausting. It was very much so. And I had insomnia and anxiety, which I'd always had. So yeah, it was exhausting and very difficult. And I wasn't really sleeping. So yeah, it was, it was very hard. So then after you kind of, after you lost George and you're starting to figure out how to live your life, the one thing that I always wonder is how soon did people start asking you if you were going to quote unquote get out there and meet someone new and and when if and when did you start to feel some type of pressure from others to you not to be crass but to move on as some people say people do say that you're right Christine and it's terrible because you know that morning is is so private and you know someone you've known for most of your life your partner for most of your life is serious uh, part of the problem was since I was so isolated that about five months after my loss, I started to just go out and start joining some groups. Um, I lived in your basic suburban town. So I joined Rotary. Uh, George had an old sports car. I joined a sport a, a car club. Okay. Okay. Um, you got me sold now. What kind of car, what car was, was he into? Uh, he had a uh, Porsche Carrera. Look at that. Nice. What year? Is an older classic one or newer one? Um, It was a 2009. Oh, fairly new. Yeah. Yeah. So you joined a car club. At the club. time, I mean. It, yeah, brand new, yeah. Joined the car club. Yeah, I was going to sell it, actually. I wasn't really a car person. But the people on the phone were so nice. Like, oh, we have dinners. We do breakfast. And I thought, well, I need to talk to people. I need to get out of the house. I need to. So 
put on actual real person clothes. So I did that. Yeah, we bought the car when he was diagnosed. So it was kind of bittersweet. Uh, do you still have the car? You know, I do. Oh, that's awesome. I'll take off your hands for you. <laughs> so, so you got involved in these different clubs, um, searching for belonging and connection. Uh-huh. Did it fill that void for you or did it exacerbate it for you? Um, that's a really good question. I think what's interesting is loneliness is so personal. So you have to feel seen. So some groups exacerbated it a bit and some groups helped. And that was kind of the balancing act. Um, Rotary, for me, sitting at a dinner with a bunch of folks who were kind of going home to their spouses, and this was kind of a brief stop off in their day. To me, I felt lonelier. But I joined a yoga studio, and there was a wonderful group of single middle-aged women like me. And I made a group of girlfriends in a tribe, and that was wonderful. I I had belonging. I had friends. Again, a lot of them were single, so we'd go out and we did stuff and went to yoga retreats. Um, The writing group. I felt very, I felt a huge sense of belonging. I made some really close friends. You know, they invited me for the class to join a group. We were pretty intense writers. So that got me more intense about writing. So it really just depends on the group and what your passion is and what the people are like. It, it's such a, a trial and error process. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And as I'm thinking through your experience and being of what I consider a very young widow, it's, it seems like, there's uh, sometimes people think, well, I can't make friends unless they know what I've gone through, or I really need people that have experienced what I've experienced to be able to connect with them. Did you find that you needed to surround yourself with friends that had similar experiences or did your friends have a wide range of backgrounds? As you mentioned, many of them were single. Well, for the women in my yoga group, I, I did feel that a lot of them had been through what I'd been through because a lot of them were, they were divorced as opposed to married. But, you know, that has its own kind of difficulties with people who'd suffered from infidelity or or marriages that hadn't worked. So a lot of us were, you know, women who expected to be partners and found ourselves at midlife alone trying to navigate a whole new way of being. So I did feel very, um, like I was with kind of kindred spirits and people who had experienced very deep pain um, but overall, I didn't really feel I needed that. I just really needed people who had empathy and brains, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. so Debbie, uh, at what point did you decide, you know what, I am going to try dating now at this point in my life after my husband passed, after having not really been in the dating scene at all, you know, up to that point. Ever. Yeah, ever, really. It's a new, new world for you. You know, it's a new, it's in, in, in today, in today's standards, not, it doesn't, dating's different today than it was probably when you and George first met, I, w- I would think. Oh, very. <laughs> so oh, extremely. So extremely. How did you, how did you navigate that and, and go into that? Well, you know, I thought I was making a reasonable choice. I started to date about 14 months after George died. That's a little over a year. To me, that was reasonable. <laughs> and I, I joined a smaller dating site, which again, seemed reasonable. <laughs> but it um, you know, it was so crazy and the people I met were so strange and I want to say damaged. I mean, I'd been through what I'd been through, but I had a lot of hope for the future. Mm. And most of the people I met were so disillusioned and so trashed and had so much baggage and so much anger 
and hadn't processed, you know, most were divorced, their past relationships was kind of a mess. And I was probably still too fragile to date 14 months after my loss. You know, I wasn't still, I wasn't a whole person yet. You know, you have to, when you, when you lose your someone you love and you've been with most of your life, you know, you lose a huge part of yourself because most of your life is as part of that other person's life. You're, you're part of a couple. So even 14 months after my loss, I really wasn't kind of a whole person on my own yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things Chris and I have talked previously on our podcast about our experiences of dating after divorce. And the one thing that I was sharing with him early on in our relationship is it's really obvious the people who haven't taken the time to do the work to get over whatever their hurt habit or hang up is that they needed to address whether or not their behavior contributed to a divorce or or not and so when you go out and you're dating an individual who hadn't been who wasn't a widower but maybe had gone through a divorce or or had come with some I refer to them as bricks in their backpack, some baggage. <laughs> um, it, it can definitely make for some interesting stories about dating. So how did you navigate your way through that? You know, I was retired and I was a writer and I was blogging. So I just started to meet a whole bunch of people. You know, I had never dated when I was younger, right? I, I'd spent my husband and, you know, I, we were together since I was 17. So I kind of just met people and then I would, would date a few who seemed like they had promised and I had, was a very poor judge of character. So I just kind of bumbled along. I met a lot of guys for coffee to see kind of what they were like and met a whole bunch of different people. And that's kind of what led me to write a book. So yeah. Well, what was like one of the example of one of the worst people you have met on a... Not worst well, people, worst like, experiences. Worst, okay, worst experiences on, on a first coffee date. Um... Gosh, there's so many. Oh, well, um, there's too many to count, huh? <laughs> well, you know, the probably the worst experience, one of the worst experiences, it wasn't a coffee date. It was a fellow I'd met for a couple really nice lunches, very pleasant fellow, really great looking. Fit, uh, mortgage broker, looks, seemed pretty together. And we go for our first romantic dinner. He takes me to San Francisco. Um, we go to this sort of really vintage classy, you know, dark restaurant, kind of a legend. And um, we come back to my place and it's, you know, now we've known each other. This is the, you know, the third or fourth date. And he just launches into the story of this blonde woman who had ruined his life. <laughs> yeah, she, um, he was in love. She was very, very hot. She had amazing breast implants. I don't know why I needed to know this. <laughs> she was so astonishing. I mean, he just can't get over. I mean, he's sort of visibly drooling as he tells me this, but uh she was mean to his kids, forced him to buy a house he couldn't afford, and then cheated on him with a guy from the gym. And and from there, he went into an, a, a brunette who failed him. I think there was another augmented blonde. It, it went from there. So and basically, at the he, end just of got, the evening, he just described all the women that he dated before you? It like, killed the mood. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, he, he, not, he not only sort of described them, it was kind of like I was a therapist. I mean, he didn't just describe, he monologued. Oh, yeah, that's more. Was than you awkward. laying on your couch with with his feet on a, up, up in his <laughs> pillow, and, and you're sitting on a chair, had a clipboard out, and and he was kind of telling you all the stuff, huh? 
It was very close to that. In my memory, that's what I see. I, I don't know that that was true. I know I'd went from sort of sitting there with red wine glasses, you know, glasses of red wine by the fire, to him sort of spilling it out and continuing and continuing. And that was like the first guy I'd really dated since George. So that was kind of a shock. I mean. <laughs> it's hard navigating you know, that. I was also, yeah. yeah, and I was so hopeful, you know, and he'd seem so fun and pleasant in his emails and over our lunch dates. And then it was just this mess. Yeah. So, well, yeah. when you do go through the dating scene after being with somebody for so long, do you, I mean, you don't really try to do this, but do you feel like in the back of your head that you're kind of like comparing this new person to what George was like in the qualities? And you're kind of thinking, you're, you're kind of not saying, kind of, I guess, kind of comparing a little bit, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I used to, I have a joke in my book that I had a Georgeometer in my head. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. Now, George was so amazing. I didn't expect anybody to be George. I mean, he had a, a terrific sense of humor and was super kind to people and had amazing manners and was just, there was so much to George and he was so smart. But I at least sort of expected people who could do things like hold open a door, um, speak in a complete sentence, not put down the people they were dating and not have, you know, suitcases of unresolved anger. Yeah, you know, I'm really, I'm relating to a lot of what you're saying, Debbie. My story is different, you know, having gone through a divorce, but my first partner and I started dating when I was, well, I met him when I was 18, started dating when I was 19 and we were together for, you know, 14, 15 years. And it's, you know, Um, even though things ended in a difficult way, I'd never dated, like he was my first boyfriend. So then when you get out there and you're trying to figure out, first of all, how do I navigate this world? And aren't all guys just supposed to be nice like this? And then you start to have this, you start to have this realization, like, what did I, I mean, like I said, even though mine ended not so great, you still start wondering, like, did I get a unicorn? Like, what, why is this so difficult? And at some point, I don't know if you got to this point, but I was just like, screw the dating scene. I just, maybe I just need to work on me and work on what, what I need to heal before I can go out and look for others. Because what I was attracting, my magnet was like all of the rough stuff. And I was like, why am I I not getting like quality humans that, you know, want to be an equal partner with me? Did you navigate any of that messy stuff? I felt that very much. And I even met a couple people I thought might be, you know, who seemed like they might be okay, but they weren't. And I did have to work on myself so much, Christine. You know, I I had to really, I looked at that, kind of navigate some of that in my book because I was looking at that and I started to look at, well, okay, I'm, I'm accepting a lot of crap because I feel so guilty for the way things ended with George, you know, Mm. that I'm not looking at myself as someone who's worthy of having a good future. You know, I'm not someone who always wants to be, um, I'm not looking at sort of how do I fix a good life for myself. You know, I was pretty secure in some ways. I owned my home. I was okay. You know, so many widows have to live up their homes or, or, or how do they do, you know, support them, a family. I didn't have to do that. But I was looking at, well, why am I, you know, settling for, for bad at the time? I was with somebody very bad. I was like, why am I settling for this? 
And I realized I had to work on the guilt. And from there, I had to look at, assume I don't meet a good person. How am I going to create a good life for myself on my own? I don't know why this just happened, but something that you just said, like, I'm seriously on the verge of tears here. Like you're preaching to the choir. It's the, why did I, why am I choosing things based off of this, this grief and this guilt that you had? Um, Like, I think there's so many people that do that after the end of a relationship is they think they're ready to start dating and then they just end up I don't like perpetuating this almost, I don't want to say self-destructive behavior, but bringing people into their lives that are less than what they are worthy of. And, and it just creates this whole other mental mess. And so how did you, how did you really get out of that? And, and how did that make its way into your book? Well, um, the guy I was dating in order to get rid of him, I had to call the police and practically get a restraining order. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. And what I also did, though, is I started to look at things like, um, for example, George had never wanted to travel. So I started to travel with some group tours um, and I got serious about writing and I uh, applied and went back to call, went back to school and got a master's. I got an MFA in writing. And I also got really into hiking because I was very lonely on the weekend. For me, that was the hardest part, you know, because people are with families. And I joined several hiking groups through Meetup. And, you know, a lot of the folks in that group, both single, you know, both uh, men and women were single. And we all sort of interacted as people as opposed to whatever people see themselves when they're dating is interacting as bots. Like, yeah. And that was a lot of social stuff there. And then I had a tribe of of single women friends through yoga. So I just sort of tried to make, start making connections and doing things on my own. Yeah. Something, something for you, something, things that you wanted to do that it's, it's Debbie's vision on, on fun stuff. I guess when you are a couple, you've been a couple for so long, it's kind of, it's not, I was, Christine always says, it's like us. Don't forget it's us. It's stuff that us, we and us. But then you're starting to transition to using the word I and me versus the us. Yeah. So you're doing things for you. That's great. It, it, it must have felt, at first, when you first do it, it must feel a little like unsettling. Like, oh, wait a second. This is not an us. It's a me thing that I want to do. But but you have the power and the means to do it. And you should do something for yourself to kind of like help you cope, I would think. Yeah, for me, it was it was good. I mean, I had to get a little bit braver, you know, get up on a morning and say, okay, I'm going to go hike with a group of strangers. And I'm not much of a driver, but I'm going to go drive to this new location. I've got my Apple map. Um, I've, you know, I can I can go here. I, I can go to this trailhead. I can figure out where it is. Even if the internet signal gives out, that was a little nerve wracking. But, you know, I liked hiking. So I will go do this and I will meet people and just go do that do that for a couple, you know, that's my weekend. And it was fine. And there were like group, you know, we live in that, you know, where we live is such nice weather. There's all these, you know, free outdoor concerts and such. And a lot of the hiking groups did other activities. So it was kind of, you know, I could see that there were a lot of social activities and a lot of people who were happy being single, especially women and who had been for a long time. So I could sort of see how they organized their lives with traveling with friends and group travel and group hiking trips and living on their own. And so as you're navigating through that and you're meeting new people, would you say that you were 
actively searching for love or you were just searching for to be social? You know, I was still in a dating app. I'm still, I, I, in, at one point I was on three or four, you know, my first public, uh, published article was for a cheesy online thing called ExoJade and it was called, I was an online dating addict. <laughs> so at this point I was no longer a dating addict. I was on one site, which I check once in a, you know, what, five minutes every morning. And so I was still looking, you know, I never gave up. Um, I, I don't know, this is a popular view, but I think some people might be hardwired to be partnered, that they're happier being in a relationship. Yeah, I, I totally feel that. I get that. I, th- I think Christine tells you that all the time, don't you, babe? I don't know. I think that you like to fly solo a bit, but I think that I do best in a partnership. I could see how that's something that I'm cut out for in life. I really do like the connection, um, but I also really like to be alone. Chris thinks it's the weirdest thing that I love going to the Some- movies completely by myself and I have no problem going to dinner by myself and just being completely satisfied with my own company, but it's because I know I have a partner at home that I can come home to. So yeah, I I can relate to that. So as you were thinking, as you're thinking through your journey, Debbie, at what point did you decide, okay, my experiences need to make their way into a book? Um, You know, it's funny. It kind of happened in stages. I was doing the writing class and then the some of the more intense people in the class who were writing books um, invited me to join their writing group. And I started to get things published in a few different places. And I, I'd always kind of had a dream of writing a book. I didn't really see how to do it. Once you start writing a book, if you're trying to write something that's publishable and entertaining, it's really hard. And it's a length of, you know, between, you know, over 250 pages. It's, it's really hard. So I just decided to start playing with it. Um, I guess, you know, my friends were doing it. I thought it would be interesting. I'd been writing a lot of vignettes during the time I'd been dating and all um, about things. And I thought, well, what if I put these together? And then I, I'm I kind of intense and I can get kind of laser focused. I'm not the funnest person, to be <laughs> honest. So um, I started to look at uh, taking some, I took some more writing classes. Um, I hired an editor that didn't work. I finally got a really good editor. I went back to school again and got, I told you, I got my MFA. And at that point, you know, I'd gotten enough stuff published that I thought, hmm, okay, I might, might be a decent writer. And the MFA was really intense. It's two years and everybody there was writing a book and you workshop it a lot. So I did that. And then with the editor, I just kind of, that's what I did. And so as you were going through this process of putting some of these vignettes together and then pulling in your experiences, what were the uh, emotions that came up as you were navigating through it? Was it all, oh gosh, this is cathartic? Or did you kind of have to go through those stages of grieving again? Some of it was definitely, um, I don't want to say cathartic. By that point, I'd sort of cathartic, if that's a <laughs> verb. Yeah, um, It was more sad, you know, very sad because uh, the book had to have depth. And while I use dating as a framework, I did go into what it was like to be with somebody in denial and watch him disintegrate. Mm. And writing those scenes um, was extremely painful. I bet. And going back to that and and looking at the stupid relationships I made was really disheartening. You know, it's like seeing a whole, this whole growth journey, hopefully growth. But yeah, so I was, I was pretty moody. Fortunately, I lived alone. So that's a good thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. So was it kind of like almost like a therapy for you to be able to go through and put this all on paper to process it again? Not really. Um, You know, the thing people, if you just want to journal, and I teach writing and I've taught writing, if you want to write like your memories or something, it is cathartic and it's lovely and you feel better afterwards. It is a wonderful thing to do. I strongly recommend it. And I'm actually going to teaching a memoir class to, to deal with our memories and also just stories for family members. And that's one thing. And that can be really positive. Once you really want to write a good book, not saying mine was good, but I sure tried, it's you really start focusing on craft. Mm-hmm. And the story elements have start to, um, you can't, how can I put this? You can't let them go. And one thing we always said in, in, in my writing workshops with the MFA class, because it was a nonfiction class, is go deeper, more, in, more um, interiority. What's the character thinking? What's the depth? Okay, now what? What did they really think? So you're going very deep. But once you're trying to put together a coherent plot and writing that's engaging and to draw someone in and have them interested in your story, the level of craft you have to master, at least for me, was, is is becomes takes over the forefront and it's really intellectually challenging. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would be when I think of nonfiction versus fiction writing, you know, fiction, you get to create these characters and the, we we actually were just speaking a few weeks ago with another author of a fiction based book. And she was talking about character development and how you have to create these personas and know them so intimately, but you're still, they're fictitious. And so they can have character flaws and you don't have to go back and look in the mirror and be like, I'm the character and this is me. And these are my flaws that I'm writing about. And so I can imagine how that could have been a difficult journey. So did you find yourself having to piece up the work as you were writing because it came to to be too overwhelming at times? Um, not so much. I mean, I, I did it pretty intensely. I think I just kind of threw myself into it. I, I, and I hired a really good editor. And once I did that, things started to fall into more place. Structuring was very difficult. And just, but, you know, mainly it was just being honest. I mean, I was just... I've, you know, one of my Amazon reviews is brutally honest. So that was kind of it. That, that's something that uh, nobody wants to hear on their first date. <laughs> no. So what is the title of your book, Debbie? And where can our listeners find out more about it? Uh, my book is called Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. And it's on Amazon. It's probably the easiest. It's Kindle Unlimited. 99 cents. I really want more readers. But um, it's also, you can get it through local bookstores. And I always put a plug for that because the local bookstore here in Benicia was so amazing to me with my book, giving me a reading and supporting it and liking it. That's great. Yeah. That's really amazing. And so if you have listeners that have gone through a similar journey and find themselves either um, widowed or divorced and are just still at that stage of sitting on the couch and listening to the albums and haven't quite found their way through yet, what would you want them well, to hear from you right now? Well, that it takes a lot of time 
at time, t- it, people don't, I mean, it's so, you feel so terribly, terribly sad. And I know at one point I was so sad and I really didn't see a way to go forward. But the small gestures and, and steps forward can start to add up to more. You know, first for me, it was just to get up and go for a walk through my neighborhood, see the same people, pet the dog, smile at the kids, not feel completely alone. And then from there to get to follow passions. And for me, it was hiking, riding, and yoga. So I would basically say that it's so hard, but things will get better with time. And if you just take a few small steps forward, you can start to look towards a new life. But yes, it is that incredibly painful. Well, Debbie, we really appreciate you being here on the show with us today and for um, helping us learn a bit more about your journey. We wish you all of the best of luck. And so listeners, we're going to leave links to the locations where you can purchase Debbie's book in the show notes from today's episode. So make sure to head on over, um, whether you download it to um, read it digitally or you order a physical copy, the thing is to make sure you order it. And so That's right. And so with that, Debbie, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, we wish you all the best of luck. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Are you in the middle of wedding planning and feeling overwhelmed? There's no need to fret, my friend. Christine Smith Designs is here to rescue you. Offering wedding planning, coordination, and wedding floral design services, let us help relieve your stress and make your wedding day dreams a reality. Visit us at christinesmithdesigns.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E smithdesigns.com and request a free consultation. You'll be so glad you did. Well, having Debbie on the show was so great. I really appreciated how she was willing to be so vulnerable about her journey through grief. You know, I can't even imagine what it'd be like if I ever lost you. Oh gosh, I don't want to think about it, but um, you know, losing a loved one. Well, you know, I mean, death is like a part of life, as they always say. It's just that it's something that most people, including myself, just don't want to deal with until we actually have to deal with it. When we do deal at that point, it might be too late, you know? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you said that. I was watching um, on Netflix the final season of The Crown, and that's the it's the last four episodes. And it leads up to the death of Princess Diana and um, the aftermath of that. But a lot of it circles around the grief that the the princes went through, as well as the queen and um, Prince Charles at the time. And even though you know he had been divorced from his you know previous wife for quite a while and was in another relationship, you see how grief moves differently through different people. Um, And I think what's unique about Debbie's story is about not being able to, I don't want to say control, but to feel that she was able to give the care for her partner that she really wanted to by, you know, him disclosing where he was at with the battle and how, you know, that can bring up lots of different feelings. But ultimately, you know, he got to choose how he wanted his end of life to be. Uh, And that's always hard for the people around us and, you know, the choices that we make and how they impact others um, in our life and after our life is over. It's just, you know, not trying to compare Princess Diana and Debbie's uh, partner, but I'm just talking about that whole experience of like, 
where our choices during life lead us. And, you know, just really thinking about those that are left behind after. I think about that all the time with you. Not to get too somber, but, you know, I am of like perpetual planner. I think that's like the right kind of term. So when it comes to thinking about if something was to happen to me and you were to be a widower, you know, I am like, I have all these life insurance policies on myself that I took out on myself, nobody else. You never said anything about it because I always have this fear, like, what if I was to be gone? Like, would you be okay? Would you be able to financially be okay? Would you be taken care of? And would you and the boys, all of the boys, be able to, you know, live a productive life in my absence? And so maybe I'm just weird that I think about that a lot, especially still being reasonably young. Um. Yeah, but when did you first start thinking about those things? Were you long? 25. That's not for, that's pretty young. We need to think about that kind of stuff, to think grim like that. Well, when I was 25, you know what? Now that you asked that question, when I was 25 was when I had to go through a lot of medical testing. Um, I was having some health problems. They'd returned from when I was younger and I had to have a pretty dramatic surgery at 25, which made me not able to have kids anymore. And before that surgery, because it was a, a, significant surgery and I was reasonably young, I started to worry about like, what if something went wrong during surgery? I've had a lot of illness throughout my life, diseases and things that I've had to overcome. And so maybe it's because I've been faced with so many medical challenges that I think about the what if factor a lot. Like, I don't know, when you have to go under the knife, I've had, I don't know how many surgeries, six, seven. I've not any surgeries I know, you're very fortunate. Well, because that bones are made out of titanium. So if they try to cut into me, they just break their blades on there. Remind uh, yourself of that every time you tell me that you just broke your leg because you like ran into the corner of something. Oh, I would stub my toe on a daily basis. It, you know, stub your toe is like, it's like surgery without any um, anesthesia. what it feels like. <laughs> Hit your toe. Stub your toe. Oh, man. Gosh. Are you pain. serious right now? The pain. You know, I all I can imagine what it's like. If you want to step out on a landmine and blow your foot off, Chris, sim- no, uh, uh, don't similar, even, no, similar uh, to uh, your toe. I'm sorry, everybody. We apologize for that statement, Chris. That was very insensitive. Very insensitive. No, I, I know. It, I mean, it hurts. I get it. That's what I'm saying. No, you don't get it. It's very insensitive. No, it's fine. It was very insensitive. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. But I think that that's how young I was when I started to think about like, taking care of those that were around me um, if something was to happen to me. Well, that's, um, that's grim. That's grim. I, you <laughs> I know. know. I mean, I, 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 even to this day, I don't even know if I have a life insurance policy. I think yes, you do. <laughs> we set it up when we started dating. And then once we got married, we made sure you had at least one because, you know, as opposed to here, I am completely worried that I'm going to leave you high and dry. And you're like, Ah, whatever. She can fend for herself. Uh, no, but um, you know, I don't even want to think about that. I don't want. I don't want to think about that stuff. Yeah, but we I don't need even to. want to. Go, I don't want to. I don't even want to talk about that because it gets me kind of like like thinking about the afterlife and thinking about like end of days and thinking like like I I know I 
I, I can't, I don't, I don't even know how to even like prepare myself for that. Even though I probably screw, screw everything up as I think about it. But uh, I mean, theoretically, I should be the first to go before you do. Theoretically. Technically, men live longer than women. They do. That's why it's good that you went for a much, well, not, much, not much younger Debbie's woman. Case, it another way around. Well, but it's a good thing that you went for a much younger woman. You know what? You're not that much younger. I you? am. I am very much younger. Oh, well, I keep trading them in. I keep going lower and lower, you know? <laughs> what? You go, you Ouch, know, you know I was like Hugh Hefner. who was like 90-something years old before he passed away. His and wife like, was like 12. <laughs> no, that's illegal in most states. Alabama, I'm not too sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at least 25. Come yeah. on now. I don't think I could date anybody lower than 25. Be 20. Well, I hope you wouldn't be dating anybody at this point considering you are married. Well, and you I'm, did I'm put just, a ring on we're, it. We're speaking after after. After, after K. Oh, you told me that you'd be so heartbroken you'd never look for love again. I could not look for love again. I, I could. I, I, I could. <laughs> We're not talking about love here. Okay. <laughs> this episode is, oh. it's devolving. So, um, you know, we do appreciate Debbie coming on the show and really sharing her heart with us and helping us to understand that grief journey. Uh, we are going to have all the information on how you can learn more about Debbie and her background and her writings in the show notes of this episode. And Chris, where else can our listeners find out more about us and all the things that are happening with Chris and Christine? You can go to our website, which is chrisandchristineshow.com. And there's a link to it in the show notes of this episode, but it's very simple, chrisandchristineshow.com. And you can find links to Chris's other podcasts, his podcast production services, links to the K2 radio show, and also to Christine Smith Designs for all of your wedding planning needs. And with that, I think that this is just about a wrap, right, Chris? We gotta wrap this bad boy, put a nice bow on it, hit on this December, huh? Check that out. Absolutely. And so thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you next next week. week.